Chapter 27 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 We marched that day over thirty miles and halted in a valley of cottonwood trees amid green leaves again. We were yet distant about forty-five miles from Fort St. James, but my friend Rufus declared that a rapid march on the morrow would take us to the halfway house by sundown. Rapid marches had long since become familiar, and one more or less did not matter much. Daybreak found us in motion. It was a fast walk. It was a faster walk. It was a run, and ere the midday sun hung over the rich undulating forest land, we were thirty miles from our camp in the cottonwood. Before noon, a lofty ridge rose before us. The trail wound up its long ascent. Rufus called it the Lookout Mountain. The top was bare of forest. The day was bright with sunshine. Not a cloud lay over the vast plateau of middle New Caledonia. Five hundred snowy peaks rose up along the horizon. The Nation Lake Mountains, the further ranges of the Aminica, the ridges which lie between the many tributaries of the Peace and the countless lakes of the North Fraser. Babine, Tatla, Pinkley, Stewart's, and far off to the west, the old monarchs of the Rocky Mountains rose up to look a last farewell to the wanderer, who now carried away to distant lands a hundred memories of their lonely beauty. On the south slope of the Lookout Mountain, a gigantic pine tree first attracts the traveler's eye. Its seam trunk is dusky red, its dark and somber head is lifted high above all other trees, and the music which the winds make through its branches seems to come from a great distance. It is the Douglas Pine of the Pacific Coast, the monarch of the Columbian forests, a tree which Turner must have seen in his dreams. A few miles south of the mountain, the country opened out into pleasant prairies fringed with groves of cottonwood. The grass was growing thick and green, the meadows were bright with flowers. Three fat horses were feeding upon one of these meadows, they were the property of Rufus. We caught them with some little difficulty, and turned our two poor thin animals adrift in peace and plenty. Then, mounting the fresh steeds, Rufus and I hurried on to Fort St. James. The saddle was a pleasant change after the hard marching of the last few days. Mud and dust and stones, alternating with the snow of the mountains, had told heavily against our moccasined feet. But the worst was now over, and henceforth we would have horses to Quinell. It was yet some time before sundown when we cantered down the sloping trail which leads to the Fort St. James. Of course, the untiring was at his usual post, well to the front. Be it dog train, or march on foot, or march with horses, the untiring led the van, his tail like the plume of Henry of Navarre at Ivory, ever waving his followers to renewed exertions. It would be no easy matter for me to enumerate all the Hudson's Bay forts which the untiring had entered at the head of his train. Long and varied experience had made him familiar with every description of post, from the imposing array of wooden buildings which marked the residence of a chief factor, down to the little isolated hut wherein some half-breed servant carries on his winter traffic on the shores of a nameless lake. Sir Fola knew them all. Freed from his harness in the square of a port, 
an event which he usually accelerated by dragging his sled and three other dogs to the doorway of the principal house, he at once made himself master of the situation, paying particular attention to two objective points. First, the intimidation of resonant dogs. Second, the topography of the provision store. Ten minutes after his entry into a previously unexplored fort, he knew to a nicety where the whitefish were kept and where the dry meat and pemmican lay. But on this occasion at Fort St. James, a woeful disaster awaited him. With the memory of many triumphal entries full upon him, he now led the way into the square of the fort, totally forgetting that he was no longer a hauling dog, but a freelance or a rover on his own account. In an instant, four huge haulers espied him, and charging from every side, ere I could force in upon the conflict to balance sides a little, they completely prostrated the hitherto invincible Eskimo, and at his last Hudson Bay post, near the close of his 2,500-mile march, he experienced his first defeat. We rescued him from his enemies before he had suffered much bodily hurt, but he looked considerably tail-fallen at this unlooked-for reception and passed the remainder of the day in strict seclusion underneath my bed. Stewart's Lake is a very beautiful sheet of water. Tall mountains rise along its western and northern shores, and forest promontories stretch far into its deep blue waters. It is the favorite home of the salmon when, late in summer, he has worked his long, toilsome way up the innumerable rapids of the Fraser, 500 miles from the Pacific. Colossal sturgeon are also found in its waters, sometimes weighing as much as 800 pounds. With the exception of rabbits, game is scarce along its shores, but at certain times rabbits are found in incredible numbers. The Indian women snare them by saxful, and everyone lives on rabbit, for when rabbits are numerous, salmon are scarce. The daily rations of a man in the wide domain of the Hudson's Bay Company are singularly varied. On the south shores of Hudson's Bay, a voyager receives every day one wild goose. In the Saskatchewan, he gets ten pounds of buffalo meat. In Athabasca, eight pounds of moose meat. In English River, three large whitefish. In the north, half-fish, and reindeer. And here, in New Caledonia, he receives for his day's food eight rabbits or one salmon. Start not, reader, at that last item. The salmon is a dried one and does not weigh more than a pound and a half in its reduced form. After a day's delay at Fort St. James, we started again on our southern road. A canoe carried us to a point some five and twenty miles lower down the Stewart's River, a rapid stream of considerable size, which bears the outflow of the lake and of the long line of lakes lying north of Stewart's into the main Fraser River. I here said goodbye to Calder, who was to return to Peace River on the following day. A whiskey saloon in the neighborhood of the fort had proved too much for this hot-tempered half-breed, and he was in a state of hilarious grief when we parted. He had been very hasty, he said, and I would excuse him as he was sorry. He would always go with this master again if he ever came back to Peace River. And then the dog caught his eye, and overpowered by his feelings, he vanished into the saloon. Guided by an old carrier Indian chief, 
The canoe swept out of the beautiful lake and ran swiftly down the Stewart's River. By sundown, we had reached the spot where the trail crosses the stream, and here we camped for the night. Our horses had arrived before us under convoy of Tom the Indian. On the following morning, the 31st of May, we reached the banks of the Nakarol River, a large stream flowing from the west. Open prairies of rich land fringed the banks of this river, and as far as the eye could reach to the west, no mountain ridge barred the way to the western ocean. This river has its source within 20 miles of the Pacific, and is without doubt the true line of the sea for a northern railroad, whenever Canada shall earnestly take in hand the work of riveting together the now widely severed portions of her vast dominion. But to this subject I hope to have time to devote a special chapter in the appendix to this book, now that my long journey is drawing to a close, and these latter pages of its story are written amid stormy waves where a southward steering ship reels on beneath the shadow of Madeira's mountains. Crossing the wide Nakarol River and continuing south for a few miles, we reached a broadly cut trail which bore curious traces of past civilization. Old telegraph poles stood at intervals along the forest-cleared opening, and rusted wire hung in loose festoons down from their tops, or lay tangled amid the growing brushwood of the cleared space. A telegraph in the wilderness? What did it mean? When civilization once grasps the wild, lone spaces of the earth, it seldom releases its hold. Yet here, civilization had once advanced her footsteps, and apparently shrunk back again, frightened at her boldness. It was even so. This trail, with its ruined wire, told the wreck of a great enterprise. While yet the Atlantic cable was an unsettled question, a bold idea sprung to life in the brain of an American. It was to connect the old world and the new by a wire stretched through the vast forests of British Columbia and Alaska to the Straits of Bering, thence across the tundras of Kamchatka, and around the shores of Okhotsk the wires would run to the Amur River to meet a line which the Russian government would lay from Moscow to the Pacific. It was a grand scheme, but it lacked the elements of success because of ill-judged route and faulty execution. The great Telegraph Company of the United States entered warmly into the plan. Exploring parties were sent out, one pierced these silent forests, another surveyed the long line of the Yukon, another followed the wintry shores of the Sea of Okhotsk and passed the tundras of the Black Gulf of Anadir. Four millions of dollars were spent on these expeditions. Suddenly, news came that the Atlantic Cable was an accomplished fact. Brunel had died of a broken heart, but the New World and the Old had welded their thoughts together with the same blow that broke his heart. Europe spoke to America beneath the ocean, and the voice which men had sought to waft through the vast forests of the wild Northland and over the tundras of Siberia died away in utter desolation. So the great enterprise was abandoned, and today, from the lonely shores of Lake Babine to the bend of the Fraser at Quenelle, the ruined wire hangs loosely through the forest. During the first two days of June, we journeyed through a wild, undulating country, filled with lakes and rolling hills, 
Grassy openings were numerous, and many small streams stocked with fish intersected the land. The lakes of this northern plateau are singularly beautiful. Many isles lie upon their surface. From the tiny promontories, the huge Douglas pine lifts his motionless head. The great northern diver, the loon, dips his white breast in the blue wavelets and sounds his melancholy cry through the solitude. I do not think that I have ever listened to a sound which conveys a sense of indescribable loneliness so completely as this wail which the loon sends at night over the forest shores. The man who wrote, And on the mere the wailing died away, must have heard it in his dreams. We passed the noisy Indian village of Lake Nula and the silent Indian graves on the grassy shore of Lake Nulkai, and the evening of the 2nd of June found us camped in the green meadows of the West Road River, up which a white man first penetrated to the Pacific Ocean just 80 years ago. A stray Indian came along with news of a disaster. A canoe had upset near the Cottonwood Canyon of the Fraser, and the Hudson's Bay officer at Fort George had gone down beneath a pile of driftwood in the whirlpools of the treacherous river. The Indian had been with him, but he had reached the shore with difficulty and was now making his way to Fort St. James, carrying the news of the catastrophe. Forty more miles brought us to the summit of a ridge from which a large river was seen flowing in the center of a deep valley far into the south. Beyond, on the further shore, a few scattered wooden houses stood grouped on a level bank. The wild rose trees were in blossom. It was summer in the forest, and the evening air was fragrant with the scent of flowers. I drew rein a moment on the ridge and looked wistfully back along the forest trail. Before me spread civilization and the waters of the Pacific. Behind me, vague and vast, lay a hundred memories of the wild Northland. For many reasons, it is fitting to end this story here. Between the ridge on the west shore of the Fraser and those scattered wooden houses on the east lies a gulf wider than a score of valleys. On one side, man. On the other, the wilderness. On one side, noise of steam and hammer. On the other, voice of wild things and the silence of the solitude. It is still many hundred miles ere I can hope to reach anything save a border civilization. The road which runs from Quesnel to Victoria is 400 miles in length. Washington Territory, Oregon, and California have yet to be traversed ere, 1,500 miles from here, the Golden Gate of San Francisco opens on the sunset of the Pacific Ocean. Many scenes of beauty lie in that long track hidden in the bosom of the Sierra. The Cascades, Rainier, Hood, and Shasta will throw their shadows across my path as the untiring dog and his now tired master wander south toward the grim Yosemite. But to link these things into the story of a winter journey across the yet untamed wilds of the great north would be an impossible task. One evening I stood in a muddy street of New York. A crowd had gathered before the door of one of these immense buildings which our cousins rear along their city thoroughfares and call hotels. The door opened and half a dozen dusky men came forth. Who are they? I asked. They are the Sioux chiefs from the Yellowstone, answered a bystander. They're a taking them to the theater to see Lester Wallach. 
Out on the great prairie, I had often seen the red man in his boundless home. Savage, if you will, but still a power in the land and fitting in every way the wilds in which he dwells. The names of Red Cloud and his brother chiefs from the Yellowstone were household words to me. It was this same Red Cloud who led his five hundred whooping warriors on Fetterman's troops, when not one soldier escaped to tell the story of the fight in the foothills of the Wyoming mountains. And here was Red Cloud, now in semi-civilized dress, but still a giant midst the puny rabble that thronged to see him come forth, with the gaslight falling on his dusky features and his eyes staring in bewildered vacancy at the crowd around him. Captain Jack was right. Better poor-hunted savage thy grave in the lava beds than this burlesque union of street and wilderness. But there was one denizen of the wilds who followed my footsteps into southern lands, and of him the reader might ask, what more? Well, the untiring took readily to civilization. He looked at Shasta, he sailed on the Columbia River, he climbed the dizzy ledges of the Yosemite, he gazed at the Golden Gate and saw the sun sink beyond the blue waves of the Great Salt Lake. But none of these scenes seemed to affect him in the slightest degree. He journeyed in the boot or on the roof of a stagecoach for more than 800 miles. He was weighed once as extra baggage and classified and charged as such. He conducted himself with all possible decorum in the rooms and corridors of the Grand Hotel in San Francisco. He crossed the continent in a railway carriage to Montreal and Boston as though he had been a first-class passenger since childhood. He thought no more of the reception room of Brigham Young in Utah than had he been standing on a snowdrift in Athabasca's Lake. He was duly photographed and petted and pampered, but he took it all as a matter of course. There were, however, two facts in civilization which caused him unutterable astonishment, a brass band and a butcher's stall. He fled from the one, he howled with delight before the other. I frequently endeavored to find out the cause of his aversion to music, Although he was popularly supposed to belong to the species of savage beast, music had anything but a soothing effect upon him. Whenever he heard a band, he fled to my hotel, and once, when they were burying a renowned general of volunteers in San Francisco with full military honors, he caused no small confusion amidst the mournful cortege by charging full tilt through the entire crowd. But the butcher's stall was something to be long remembered. Six or eight sheep and half as many fat oxen hung up by the heels, apparently all for his benefit, was something that no dog could understand. Planting himself full before it, he howled hilariously for some moments. And when, with difficulty, I succeeded in conducting him to the seclusion of my room, he took advantage of my absence to remove, with the aid of his teeth, the obnoxious door panel which intervened between him and this paradise of mutton. On the Atlantic shore, I bid my old friend a long goodbye. It was night, and as the ship sailed away from the land, and I found myself separated for the first time during so many long months from a friend and servant and partner who, through every swift vicissitude of changeful time, unchanged had stood, I strung together these few rhymes, 
which were not the less true because they were only more doggerel. Old dog, goodbye, the parting time has come, hero on the verge of wild Atlantic foam. He who would follow when fast beats the drum must have no place of rest, no dog, no home. And yet I cannot leave thee, even here where toil and cold and peace and rest shall end, poor faithful partner of a wild career through icy leagues, my sole unceasing friend. Without one word to mark our long goodbye, without a line to paint that wintry dream, when day by day, oh, husky thou and I, toiled o'er the great Unchaga's frozen stream. For now, when it is time to go, strange sights rise from the ocean of the vanished year, and wail of pines and sheen of northern lights flash o'er the sight and float on memory's ear. We cross again the lone, dim, shrouded lake where stunted cedars bend before the blast. Again, the camp is made amidst the break, the pine log's light upon thy face is cast. We talk together. Yes, we often spent an hour in converse while my bit thou shared. One eye, a friendly one, on me was bent, the other on some comrade fiercely glared. Deep slept the night, the owl had ceased his cry, Unbroken stillness o'er the earth was shed. And crouched beside me, thou wert sure to lie, Thy rest a-watching, snow thy only bed. The miles went on, the tens neath twenties lay, The scores to hundreds slowly, slowly rolled, And ere the winter wore itself away, The hundreds turned to thousands doubly told. But still thou wert the leader of the band, And still thy step went on through toil and pain, until, like giants in the wild Northland, a thousand glittering peaks frowned o'er the plain. And yet we did not part. Beside me still was seen thy bushy tail, thy well-known face. Through canyon dark and by the snow-clad hill thou kept unchanged thy old familiar pace. Why tell it all? Through fifty scenes we went, where Shasta's peak its lonely shadows cast. Till now, for Afric's shore my steps are bent, and thou and I, old friend, must part at last. Thou wilt not miss me, home and care are thine, and peace and rest will lull thee to the end. But still, perchance with low and wistful whine, thou'lt sometimes scan the landscape for thy friend. Or when the drowsy summer noon is high, or a wintry moon upon the white snow shines, from dreamy sleep will rise a muffled cry, for him who led thee through the land of pines. End of chapter 27 Read by Stephen Seidel Thank you for listening. End of the Wild Northland by William Francis Butler